Thank you for joining us today on the Legal Technology Review Podcast. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Brian Folks, civil litigator and author of The Cyber Advocate. Today we have a topic that I've actually been uh, pretty excited to, to talk about, and a guest I've been very excited to talk to, uh, Ms. Nicole Black, up in Rochester, New York. Uh, we're going to be talking about wearables. Uh, Nikki, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. You actually suggested talking about wearables. What got you into the idea of wearables for attorneys? Um, essentially, it, it was actually on my case customer, Mitch Jackson. <clears throat> he has a blog, and he wrote a um, blog post about Google Glass. He was one of the first people to get Google Glass, and he had written about using Google Glass and um, in his practice and also the potential of using Google Glass. And then I saw an article, um, I want to say it was in, um, I, can't, I can't remember exactly, it was online from one of the larger publications about a law firm that, a PI firm that was <clears throat> taking Google Glass and giving it to their clients um, for a day in the life from the perspective of their clients. For example, someone who um, was a quadriplegic as a result of an accident. And so that way they could really truly have this day-in-the-life video for settlement purposes or for use at trial of how much these injuries really affected this person's this person. So between those two things, it really was interesting to me, and I decided I wanted to get my hands on a pair of Google Glass. Um, and so I reached out to Tim Stanley at Justia because uh, I've um, known him online forever, and he's always been very kind to me, and he has a lot of Google connections because he helped put Google Scholar together. And he, uh, I was just hoping to reach out to someone to get a review pair. And he actually was able to get me a free pair rather than just a, um, a, a low price pair. And so I was using Google Glass at that point, and I thought it was really interesting. And so I started writing about wearables and the potential of wearables. And Google Glass, as it was then and as it is now, I think there's some difficulties for the legal field. But Apple Watch, on the other hand, now that I have one of those, I'll share with you that I think there's a lot more potential with that, at least now. Tell me about Google Glass, because I feel like, it was uh, the, the you know, forgive the use of the term, the kind of comedy version of the term that came out, the, the Google uh, glass hole right. uh, was, was one of the funny tropes around the internet. But what, what are your favorite features of Google Glass? What kind of things can you even do with it? I think a lot of people just don't know because it, it, it never really hit that kind of mainstream level like Apple Watch is now finally doing. Well, the problem with Google Glass really at the outset is that it was ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time and it's too obvious that you're wearing this technology. So, uh, I mean, that, that, at the outset, that was the problem with it. And that's why I think that now they're reintroducing it to the place where it makes sense, which is enterprise and the medical field. And the reason it's going into those arenas is because that's where it really does make sense for, for its use. So from my own perspective, using it, you know, having these notifications pop up in front of my face seems a little strange. And you know, that in general, or, you know, trying to read articles or something, that wasn't all that easy and having to tilt your head in all these weird ways. But what I found it really useful for, which was less from a legal perspective, but this is why I think it's going into enterprise, was I, I cook a lot. And I'm known on social media as, you know, the lawyer who cooks and I post my recipes and I post pictures of the food that I make. And people are always asking me to post videos of me making the food. So over the years, I've tried that. Initially, I had my laptop set up, but you couldn't see anything but, you know, my back. <laughs> and then you, I tried to get like a phone sort of set up so that it would show what I was cooking, but that didn't work well either. But with the Google Glass, it was perfect. It was my, my perspective, 
and you could see everything that I was cooking and chopping up and you could see it as I cooked. And so it was, it's like the perfect tool for tutorials or for seeing something from the perspective of what that person's doing. So as I mentioned, that law firm for the day in the life video, that's a great use mm -hmm. for it. Yeah, absolutely. Mitch Jackson had suggested in court, if you have an expert uh, jury um, expert in New York City and you're in California, you don't have to bring the jury expert in. They can see from your perspective what you're doing and they can um, you know, tell you, give you input, whether it's via Skype or otherwise, about who to pick and who not to pick and give you their live, real-time input. So that's another way to use it. Um, but the ways that they're using I just saw the other day um, in the medical field, they're using it in a lot of ERs when someone comes in with um, uh, poisoning symptoms. Oftentimes, there's only a handful of experts across the country that are familiar with those symptoms. And when you describe them, it doesn't go over very well, and that can often be confused in translation. But when the doctor puts the glasses on, and you, this expert on the other side of the country can actually see the person and see the symptoms, there's a much more likelihood of an accurate diagnosis of the particular poison this person ingested. And so they're finding that it's greatly reducing the recovery rates from poison by using Google Glass in that way. So there's really a ton of applications, and also in um, industry, so that they can follow how people are uh, efficiency in manufacturing and that type of thing so they can see what the workers are actually doing and how they can make their movements more efficient and take better advantage of their time. So there really are a, a ton of different ways to use it, but it was, it was, it's, it was too early because you looked like an idiot wandering around with your Google Glass <laughs> on, you know, and it was just, it just was not ripe, right? You know, it, it wasn't ready yet. It strikes me as excellent for demonstrative purposes, if nothing else. What do you see as the best way for, for lawyers and law firms to use wearables now i think the the day in life video is, is a is a really interesting uh perspective having having been on the defense side of personal injury claims and medical malpractice claims saw quite a few attempts at introducing day in the life videos in court that i think were mo much more easily objected to on the basis of uh your honor they hired a professional film crew to come into their house to do this uh, i can show you with some basic video editing how to make something look great or look terrible. But a professional film crew is obviously not something that, you know, is what people go through in a regular day in their life. So the day in the life video actually strikes me as a very unique and realistic way to use wearables in your practice. What what current uses do you see for other types of wearables right now? Well, the same firm that did that, I reached out to them and I'm going to interview them in a couple of weeks for Above the Law uh, because I felt like that issue was becoming interesting again since glasses being reintroduced um, into enterprise. And one thing that I'm going to be talking to them about that um, they'd mentioned in our emails was they now are using Apple Watch and giving it to their clients um, in part to track their clients, um, you know, get the data. They've been giving them Fitbit. They're also giving them Apple Watch um, to track their clients' um, activity levels uh, and uh, also for communication purposes, to make it easier for them to get a hold of their clients. And I haven't actually spoken to them and fleshed out those ideas, but those were some things I hadn't thought about. It's one thing to, in litigation, which is just barely starting to happen, people trying to get through discovery Fitbit data of a plaintiff who says their activities have been severely curtailed because of an injury. But it's another thing to actually proactively use that data if on behalf of your own client who's the plaintiff. Um, it's, that almost makes makes more sense to me and is smarter because you have control over that data and you know how it compares to prior to the accident rather than being caught unaware. So I think that's really interesting. And then just in terms of uh, a lawyer's practice, <clears throat> one of the things that I love about um, 
about the Apple Watch is the ability. I have one. I've had it since the day they came out. The ability to, with the notifications, to stream the notifications so you only get the ones that really work for you that you need to know. So whether it's your assistant, whether it's your spouse, whether it's daycare, whether it's an associate at the office who found a case that's relevant to the trial you're in the middle of, um, it really untethers you from your phone because you only get the important notifications so you're not constantly grabbing your phone. So I think it's really great in terms of that and um, also in terms of screening phone calls. You know, you only take the important calls and you know to ignore the other ones. And also plenty of other things not related to that. Like I found it incredibly useful when I'm traveling. I travel a lot for work and it's great to have for that. That's what I appreciate it the most, quite honestly. listening to Legal Technology Review on the Cyber Advocate. Don't forget to follow all the latest on tools and technology for legal service professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. What features do you find most helpful when traveling? I use, first of all, I have my boarding pass loaded onto it, so I don't have to pull my phone out. Um, and I also have my TripIt data, so I usually print the boarding passes out as well as a backup right now because sometimes mm-hmm. the scanners are only made for skinny iPhones and you can't sure. put your wrist in there, so I want a backup. But I use the TripIt to get my confirmation number to print it out. And then I use the watch. Um, when you put your watch on um, airplane mode, it sets your phone in airplane mode, so you don't have to pull your, pull your phone out for that. And it's also great for uh, navigating when you're in a city that you're not familiar with and you want to go somewhere a couple blocks away, it's a lot easier to navigate with your phone. You don't look like a tourist. You know, your phone taps you on the wrist and tells you in 100 feet you have to turn left or right, and it tells you the name of the street, and you turn, and then you keep walking. And one time I took a wrong turn, and it went crazy, like tapping me on the wrist and beeping, and it rerouted me. And every time I've ever used it, it's gotten me where I need to go, and I don't look like an idiot. And you're not staring at your phone where you're going to end up in like a falling into a manhole or something, which has been known to happen in cities too, so... And also, I would also imagine that by, by being able to keep your phone in your pocket, it. I do know that the kill switch has supposedly affected the level of theft of devices, making them less valuable to steal, but they're still one of the more highly stolen personal uh, possession item, or personal property items you can have, and not having to have it out at all times has to at least make you a little bit less of a target. That's true, but they're also aware of the watch, too. I, when I was in D.C., Oftentimes when I go into the big cities, I'll grab like $10 a single. So that when I walk around, I just hand them to people that are asking for money. And I gave a guy a couple, you know, a dollar or two that was sitting on the street when I handed him. It was just like within days of the watch coming out. He said, is that a watch or a phone on your wrist? I said, it's a watch. Like last thing I needed was I'm grabbing my watch. But he was totally attuned to what was on my wrist, which I thought was interesting. Um, and then I had also read that... Uh, Thieves are all already aware of the fact that if they pull it off your wrist quick enough and slide their finger underneath it within a one to two second time frame, the watch won't shut off as long as they do it quick enough. Um, yeah. it, the watch won't know it's been removed from your wrist and it'll think it's still on your wrist because their finger will be underneath it where the sensor is. So they're already, you know, doing that. They're aware of that and they're finding ways to steal the watch. So Yeah, you know. I guess it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, if you, when Google... When Google decided they were going to take their capture form and actually just make it so all you had to do was click a button because they'd figured out how to, how to get uh, eliminate the bots just by clicking the button, and within about an hour, uh, all the hackers had already re- readjusted their bots. So now that's why you still have to plug anything. I guess you know if if someone's going to 
make their livelihood dependent on being able to successfully steal something, they're going to find a, a way to do it. <laughs> um, now, what one of the big uh, things that you mentioned was the idea of giving you know Fitbit or an Apple Watch to a client for uh, tracking of information. Have you uh, had any uh, discussion with any litigators who've who've tried successfully to either use wearable data on their client's behalf or to obtain and use opposing party wearable data in court? I haven't personally spoken to anyone in a couple of weeks. Like I said, I'm going to talk to that one law firm. I just wrote my daily record article earlier today um, and submitted it about this concept of this data being used as evidence in court. And there's only two articles I'm aware of where people have actually done that, that, that I've seen. I'm sure there's a few others, but one of them was um, <clears throat> a woman who, this was in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had alleged that she'd been um, a stranger, had broken into her house and raped her. And the, I guess there was a lot between the evidence around the house, like footprints in the snow or the lack thereof, they thought she was making this up and they used her Fitbit data to show that even though she said she'd been sleeping and woken up, that she'd been awake all night, moving around all night, and that that was part of their proof when they eventually filed filing a false claim charges against her, that she had made the allegations up. Wow. So I, that was one. Yeah, <laughs> that was one case. And then the other one was um, in a personal injury matter. It had to do with uh, the person had been injured prior to Fitbit. Yeah. But it, um, <clears throat> so they couldn't have Fitbit data from before the injury, but they used were using the Fitbit data to show that her activity level was below that of a typical person her age and her type of you know and her health um, to show that her injuries had affected it so that her activity level was much lower than normal. Yeah, I think so. w- when I when I I wrote a, I wrote about Fitbit use in court in February. It was based on a story about a. It was in Canada. Calgary, yeah, that's the one I was just talking about. The second one, the yeah, personal injury where it was in the person was a physical therapist, and I think one of the things that they were trying to show is that not only was her activity level below what a physical therapist should be, but but actually below what an average person would be. But one of the things that I wrote about because there were and there were so many issues with it was the non-standard form of data that all of these devices now seem to have for the purposes of tracking this data. Are there any steps that you see now that you know involve more of a standardization of this data that you're going to be able to understand the data based on it being you know uniformly accepted? Well, that's a really interesting question. It's not one I'd even given any thought to previously. Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I just can't see there being any standardized data because you've got the Android iPhone, you know, Android Apple distinction and um, all the different apps and different developers that can you know, create different apps for each of those devices. And then there's Fitbit and all these other standalone wearables. I, I can't imagine that there would be some sort of standardized data set that would be created. And there's all different types of activity you can track. Like, you know, even like geolocation on your, your watch. You know, your watch can be 30 feet away from your phone or else if you're on the same Wi-Fi network. So you, I think that can even provide... valuable geolocation data separate from your phone in some ways, depending on how accurate it is. So there's a lot of other types of data, too, that you're looking at, too. But I I don't know. I hadn't given much thought to that. It's a good question. In kind of the readings of of your ethics analysis on a lot of the stuff, especially social media-based, you and I see pretty much eye-to-eye on what attorneys should have to be advising their clients about does the rise of the wearable create an entirely new set of 
competence issues for lawyers when it comes to making sure you're telling your client everything they need to know at the beginning of a matter? That's a really good point, too. I think I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of analogies to be drawn between social media and lawyers and then wearables and lawyers. And the article that I just wrote, I actually said years ago when I talked about social media, everyone just looked at me with a blank look. They really didn't care. And it wasn't until it actually began to affect their cases and show up in court and their opponents were using it that they cared about it. And I feel like it's, and then it got to the point where now with social media, we're telling them, you know, you need to advise your clients, you know, to do these things. And if you do have them erase their um, profiles, you have to preserve it all. And you don't just preserve the, you know, what you can see, you preserve all that data behind it. And if you don't, you're encountering spoliation issues that can tank your whole case. So we have all of that that's been discussed in relation to social media. I feel like the wearables are going along the same path. And that's a really good point that you raised because when I was writing about Google Glass a year and a half ago or whatever it was, no one seemed interested. They thought it was a fad. And until the watch came, I was really excited about Apple Watch because I knew that was going to be a turning point. And, you know, it's, people are still questioning whether it is, but I, I guarantee that the watch is going to take hold. And Oh, you see them now. That, was, <laughs> yeah. that is one of the biggest things that I – and when I, I wrote about them the day they were announced, and I said the, the one of the biggest things – and I remember seeing a quote the next day from uh, – all of the Android Wear executives being like, of course we're not upset that they're coming out with this. The bottom line is, at this point, for wearables, a rising tide lifts all boats. You yeah. see people with the Apple Watch. Before it, you, could, you, you maybe knew of someone who had an Android Wear or had something you know, like right. that. But even Fitbit is benefiting, I think, from, the, from the, the adoption of the Apple Watch. People are seeing it. It's no longer, what the hell is that? It's, oh, yeah. It's an Apple Watch. Right. It's not, it's not, by, by making it no longer a big deal, I think it's made it into... A tipping point. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's made it into, it's, it's, it's acceptable, therefore, why not? Right. I think so. And, and along the lines of what you'd, uh, the idea of talking to clients ahead of time, I think that it does up the ante because you used to say, well, if, you know, you're obviously injured, so you don't want to be outside lifting furniture into trucks or you don't want to be outside mowing your lawn or whatever because old school when I was practicing law um, in that uh, civil litigation law firm you know you send investigators out and get photos and so now it ups the ante because you either you wear your Fitbit or you don't but if you wear your Fitbit your activity levels better be consistent with your injury and then you you know you have to be careful how you walk that you really shouldn't be representing somebody if their activity levels are not um, uh, don't match their injury but it's important, I think, let your clients know that because other that activity can be captured and used against them. Part of the thing that's interesting to me is that I feel like there are enough attorneys out there who would rather the information not exist than, and, and in, in a way, it's kind of a lot like the, the social media thing. I know plenty of attorneys who don't ask for social media because they don't want to deal with what might be on it. They don't want, first of all, they don't want to take the time to really figure out how to understand what's there. But they also don't necessarily want to, you know, it's this fear that, okay, if I ask for social media data and it matches what they're claiming, all that is is a magnifier of their own evidence. But if it doesn't match what they're claiming, I still might not be able to present it very effectively. I can see plenty of attorneys actually instructing clients not to wear wearables so that the information simply doesn't exist. Is, do you think that's going to be a problem? I think instructing the client not to wear wearables or to stop posting to social media is different than there's a distinction to be made between that and not requesting social media from your data from your opponents in litigation 
because you don't know what to do with that data once you get it. I think that the former, which is just instructing them not to use social media anymore and not to wear a Fitbit, is a strategical decision. I think the latter borders on malpractice. I agree. We are talking to Nikki Black about wearables in the practice of law. You are listening to the Legal Technology Review. So stick around. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the Legal Technology Review on any of your favorite podcast apps or over at iTunes. Just search for Legal Technology Review or The Cyber Advocate. Also, don't forget, you can get all the information on the latest tools and technology for legal service professionals at www.thecyberadvocate.com. All right, we're back talking with Nikki Black about wearables. One interesting thing that I've found is that sometimes new technology can actually force either late adopters or, in this for this particular question, courts themselves into adjusting and dealing with new technology. I found that, that smartphones really forced courts to accept the fact that they're not going to prevent lawyers, in a, lot of, in a lot of cases, from bringing their phones into court. And that, in fact, that you actually, with uh, it, it sort of paved the way for, even if you don't allow them to bring in phones, allowing them to bring in tablets. What do you think wearables will do for courts that have resisted allowing live recording of proceedings? I think it's interesting because it's going to get to a point where, and I don't think it's that far off in the future because things are accelerating so quickly, where you don't even, you don't even need a watch to record the proceedings. You know, the, the tech, I mean, right now you really don't. You could have something on your lapel and they wouldn't know that it was a camera. So I think that they're just fighting this losing battle and they, the judges in particular tend to have these knee-jerk reactions, most of them. I've interviewed a couple from my Above the Law column that are very forward-thinking, but um, and surprisingly, some of them were in their 60s and, you know, they were... But even so, they were really forward-thinking, but a lot of them just have these knee-jerk reactions. And judges have very myopic views of the world. It's almost like once they get on the bench, their whole perspective changes and they become oftentimes very controlling and about just their entire environment in their courtroom. And, you know, it's a, they're just fighting a, a losing battle and it's a rising tide and there's not much they're going to be able to do about it. Um, but they certainly can forbid lawyers from doing it if they find out lawyers have recorded the proceedings and using any type of device, that can be problematic and they can do something about it. I'm just, I think it'd be contempt of court charges, arguably, if the judge orders them not to, but they may never find out about it. You know, it's only if the lawyer uses it publicly that they would find out about it. If they want to use it internally to review what somebody said or to review a witness's testimony in preparation for a cross or something, they may never find out about it. I'm a little bit curious as to exactly how long it's going to be before we get to actually see Justice Scalia on Periscope uh, via, via Google Glass or something like that. That uh, you think Scalia will do it? <laughs> well, I'm not sure he'll be the one. Uh, he'll be the one who uh, pioneers the practice. To be perfectly honest, I'm surprised that Ginsburg hasn't started doing that from the bench already. But that's. But it, it's. It really seems to me like this is an opportunity for a lot of courts, and for especially for a lot of more progressive judges, and just. You know, as uh, as my practice of continuing to mention Justice Willett from Texas, uh, anytime he you know feels free to to retweet any of my posts, I will continue to mention him in my podcast. But when right. you got it, when you've got someone like that who is actually a not just forward thinking, but someone who's willing to look at the the positives of technology, find find the best parts about 
new technology and exploit the best parts so that you're, you're getting a good example from a sitting justice about how this can be used to improve the public perception of the bench as opposed to what seems to be, I mean, how many people for how long thought of Twitter as, I really don't need to know in 140 characters what you ate for breakfast. Right. I mean, and the, but then you get, but you get the right people using it the right way, and you finally have a voice for saying, no, lawyers, it actually can be a good thing to use Twitter. Look at how effectively certain lawyers do. When you get someone who, you know, can sort of pioneer it in the right way, I think it's, it's amazing the, the changes that can happen and how quickly they can happen. I, I'm, I'm interested to see. At some point, it's going to happen. You're going to have reporters with Google Glass, you know, in, in courtrooms recording the stuff. You're going to have someone transmitting it live. And I, I wonder to what extent courts are going to be able to stop the information from coming out that way once it starts. Right. Well, they're definitely already using Twitter. There was a very big trial in Syracuse, which is an hour uh, east of us here in Rochester, uh, where a physician was charged with murdering his wife. And my mentor... Uh, one of the reasons I went to law school in the first place was the attorney for the defendant. And that entire case, the Newlander case, was all over social media and live tweets from court. And it was very interesting to see that unfold. That's happening a lot more often these days. That seems to make, I mean, it makes more sense to me. I, I, I was always actually a big fan of uh, Aaron, Aaron Sorkin's show, The Newsroom. But I was, and I, I remember watching in this last season when they did the coverage of, uh, they, they did coverage of the Boston bombing was one of the topics. And it kind of used it as a way to mock the way that the Boston bombing was covered on Twitter. But I, I'll go back and watch the Daily Show about the coverage of the, the Boston bombing. And the, the bottom line is Twitter got it right when all the mainstream news channels had it dead wrong. There's something about you know, being able to get live information like that. It's something that it, it, people who are objecting to it, people who don't like it, people who think it's amateur, they need to well kind of get over themselves because it's here. Well, the other, I always use... Um... And sort of my big picture talks that I give a comparison of um, September 11th to the Boston Marathon bombing from the perspective of the nation. You know, how did we get the information? Where did it come from? How quickly did we learn it? You know, and it's a great, those two points are great comparisons because September 11th was when people just had their Motorola flip phones. You didn't have the video capabilities yet. And um, so the video that came out of that was, uh, especially the initial you know, strikes to the buildings and stuff was professional photographers who or videographers who happened to be there for some other reason, or one or two people that actually had those bulky, you know, cameras in their um, apartments, and they were at a high level somewhere, you know, they were at the top of their building, and they were able to get a few shots of it. But besides that, you know, it was, there was the 911 calls, but it was the TV media that you learned about it on TV, you saw it on TV. And then Boston Marathon bombing was a completely different experience, like news breaks on Twitter now. Um, and that's where, and that's really how they solved that case. They had all the cameras on the ground too, but they, it was citizen data that had been provided and they took those terabytes of data and combed through it all and ended up with like images galore of these guys and what happened. And, you know, there was an airtight case because of that. So they're just completely different experience. And, you know, even from my own personal experience, we live on a fault line, but it's not a very active fault, but everyone's going to have little teeny earthquakes. And I was in a Starbucks like a year and a half ago or something, and everything started shaking just a little bit because it was not. And I remember thinking, either I'm having some sort of medical event or there's an earthquake <laughs> going on. So I looked on Twitter and I just said Rochester earthquake. And there were a whole bunch of different tweets. So then I said to someone next to me, 
did you feel that? But I wanted to check before I made a fool of myself. <laughs> and you know, it was all over Twitter already within 10 seconds of it happening. So. Well, depending on what you were getting at Starbucks, you could probably have justified it in several different ways, I would think. And that's yet <laughs> one too many. Right, um, right. So as someone who's an advocate of using these wearable devices, what features would you like to see wearables implement more? Or what features that are, are starting to be implemented do you think lawyers should really start to use? Well, that's a good question. I, I feel like the smart the Apple Watch is a lot like the iPhone. I got the iPhone within months of it coming out, not right when it came out, but it was like a diamond in the rough. And I feel like the Apple Watch is a diamond in the rough. And there are enough apps on it to make it useful, to help you sort of understand the potential. But I think once the third-party developers, I mean, they obviously already are developing apps, but the more of them that come out, especially for the different niches, including legal, then you'll really start to see people using it in ways that didn't even occur to us it could be used. So I often have difficulty envisioning those ways myself, which may be why I'm not an app developer and why I do what I do. But once I see someone do it, I'm like, that's it. I know it's I either know it's good or it's not good. And I know that the Apple Watch is going somewhere. I know that in I predict in two years, half the lawyers will have it because they take to mobile like a fish takes to water compared to all of the types of tech. And it's a great extension and it has so many practical uses for them. Um, but specifically what, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to, I just have not had any aha moments like, oh, this would be the perfect app for lawyers and their watch. I just, I, unfortunately, I don't have the answer. So <laughs> You know, that, that is something interesting though. For all the talk about how lawyers tend to be slow adapters and whatever like that, it was remarkable to me how quickly law firms switched from Blackberries to iPhones. And this wasn't just, I mean, I had my own iPhone. and I was the definition of the BYOD before it became known that this was a whole huge risk that you had to worry about. Right. But even firms that provided phones you know, to their attorneys, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, the uh, lawyers do adopt mobile. Anything that allows us to, to do work away from the office, I'm not really sure if that whether that speaks more to our need to build more time or our desire to get the hell out of the office. Probably depends on the lawyer. <laughs> yeah, may, maybe a little of both. Yeah. Are there any devices uh, coming down the, the pipe that you've seen or that you know about that, that you're really looking forward to? Some of the things I think are really interesting are, although most of them are not all that attractive to me right now, are the ideas, the ones targeted at women, um, wearable tech that's jewelry. I think some of those are really interesting if they could do them correctly. You know, and um, but the problem is everyone has such different tastes and styles. And then how much data can actually be on there? I feel like a Fitbit I was never interested in because it only does one or two things. And the reason I like the phone, Apple Watch so much is there are so many different things that it can do. And you can't put all those things on a ring or something or a necklace. You really do need some space, I feel like, a screen. So I feel like a watch is the, <laughs> the smallest you're going to be able to go in some ways when it comes to that. But... I don't know. Um, some of the other, some things that I've seen that were really interesting are like the the devices or, or the apps that are designed for health, like the little ankle bracelet they put on babies for SIDS, so that you can monitor your child and especially kids that are at risk for SIDS because it had a sibling that died of it or something. Um, those are really interesting. Um, and other types of healthcare device devices that are created specifically to monitor a certain condition. Those types of wearables seem to me are that are really going to have a lot of utility, but not, you know, clearly they're very streamlined for a specific purpose. It's a very interesting field. One of the things that I laughed when I saw the Apple Watch, people said that it won't catch on, that it only does these few things. And I said, 
Have you ever had anything make your life slightly, just slightly more convenient and been willing to go back? Right. Once you experience that, just a little improvement, it just has to be a little. Going back is this arduously painful task that, oh man, I can't, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, it's so much easier just to even, you know, when I used to play Madden football, when I read about what the new game was going to do, or when I played the new game and saw the new features and hated going back, it's tenfold with conveniences in regular life. When you get something that taps you, that tells you when you're going the wrong way on a street. Right. Are you, you know, really, okay, am I going to go back to the Google Maps app on my phone where I'm not really going to know if I'm going the wrong way until I've gone half a block because I can't tell because the GPS hasn't figured it out yet. Right. I think that's one of the probably biggest things that a lot of these wearable devices have going for them. And I've wondered about Fitbit, whether they were going to survive the Apple Watch, because like you said, Fitbit does a couple things really well. But if you wanted to do all of the the cool things like tracking your sleep and everything like that, you're getting the version that now costs as much as an Apple Watch or $100 less than an Apple Watch, which does so many more things. Why not just get the Apple Watch? Right. Yeah, I don't think the Fitbit's, I I can't imagine it's going to be around that much longer, but could be wrong. But then again, then again, GoPro has managed to make itself into a, a unique new system. I still think the funniest thing about GoPro is that at the same time they announced that they're going to be in, I was it, was it the, the 2016 Toyota Tacoma are going to come with GoPros mounted in the dash. And the same week they announced the deal with Meerkat to broadcast live from your GoPro camera. And I just said that if you know that you're pulling up at a stoplight next to a 2016 Toyota Tacoma, watch out. As of now, all what they brought is they brought us all those great dash cam shots from Russia. Well, that's what I was going to say. Those are great. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Like, that's life happening. <laughs> You're totally going to see that here, too. I was going to say, now coming to American highways, the Russian highway experience. Right. It's amazing the things people do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and want to do and, and, and want to right. share and want to share with the world. Well, uh, Nikki, I want to thank you for joining us today and talking to us about wearables. You can follow Nikki on any, I will make sure that all of your many online publications, including, uh, as you've mentioned, your daily record and your above the law stuff are uh, available on the blog posts that accompany this podcast. You've been listening to the Legal Technology Review, powered by the Cyber Advocate, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.